Hello, welcome back to episode eight of Finding Your Fearless, a Melbourne Vixens podcast hosted by Joe Weston. Finding Your Fearless is presented by Deakin University. At Deakin University, every single course is backed by industry experts. This means you can be confident you'll get the job you want with a degree employers want. Deakin University, progressive real world learning. Today, I am joined by the amazing Annabelle Smith. Belle has just come back from her third Olympics, which is an incredible achievement. She has also competed in three Commonwealth Games and along the way has won three bronze medals and a bronze medal at the Rio Olympic Games. As a diver, she is as incredible out of the pool as she is on the platform. Moving from a young age to pursue her sport, but maintaining her positive outlook along the way. Enjoy this chat with Belle. Annabelle or Belle, thank you for joining Finding Your Fearless. How are you going? Hi, thanks for having me on. Um, I'm doing pretty well. It's an interesting time coming back from the Olympics and just chilling in hotel quarantine, but um, I'm doing pretty good, thank you. Yes, I don't think any of us are envious of watching all our Olympic athletes having to go through two weeks of quarantine when I'm sure they're just wanting to share the experience they just had with their friends and family as soon as possible. But it's all part of keeping our country safe and I'm sure yeah. you have had the writing on the wall in terms of COVID protocols for the last however long as most people have, but especially people in the sports world. Am I right in saying that? Yes, very correct. We've been dodging borders and, you know, filling in lots of forms and lots of tests, trying to do the right thing in the lead up to the Olympics. And then um, now obviously coming home, doing the right thing and doing our quarantine period before going back home, even though back home for me is Melbourne and they're in lockdown anyway. <laughs> it's an interesting time. It always seems to be the way I feel like all of us have spent the last few years just trying to avoid COVID to try and continue yep. to compete. Um, we'll talk about uh, the most recent Olympics in a little bit, but with most of the guests um, I have on the podcast, I feel like it's really important to get, I guess, the whole picture about how they came to the level they are at now. We actually went to school together, uh, which is probably yeah. an interesting backstory for all of the listeners. <laughs> you were the year above me at school and you're always very athletic, Adabelle, and very gifted. Um, As and, you were too, Joe Weston. <laughs> I just, I think I found one sport and stuck at it. You were very multi-talented <laughs> on the other hand. We played in the netball team together, but maybe... Maybe talk um, to me about, you know, other sports you played, how you actually, you know, got recruited into the diving world. Yeah, well, I sort of had a pretty normal childhood playing as many sports as I could. I was definitely naturally sporty and came from um, a pretty sport-obsessed family. So in primary school, I sort of did the, the normal sports, as you would say, maybe, like um, little athletics and I played netball. I loved netball um, and I also really loved soccer. So they were probably the three main ones I did, but if I wasn't, you know, at a club training session or um, playing on the weekends, I was in the backyard kicking the footy with my brother or playing backyard cricket or just jumping on my trampoline and teaching myself flips. So I sort of had that natural acrobatic knack from the start as well. Um, and then it wasn't until I think, I think I was in grade six, um, I was 11 or 12 years old and I grew up in Vermont, so there was a Ringwood, an old diving pool in Ringwood that um, I just went to a holiday program. We used to kind of just go there to swim in the holidays, but I joined a diving class and one of the coaches saw that I had a bit of natural talent and asked me to join up for the term program. 
uh, which was kind of fun and challenging. Didn't mm-hmm. really remember knowing much about diving back then. But, um, yeah, that one session a week pretty quickly, a year or a year and a half later, turned into a full-on high-performance program based out of MSAC in the city and training 10 times a week and having to give everything else up. So uh, it was a pretty pr- quick progression from when I started to when it became pretty serious. But, yeah, I sort of haven't looked back since. No, you have been climbing the diving ranks and climbing up to the 10-metre synchro for many, many, many years. I think diving is one of those sports which I just, I think all of us love watching and it's a somewhat niche, but most people probably come to it from a gymnastics or acrobatic background. Even as I was watching um, the Olympics scene, Cassian is an ex acrobat and now he's an olympic diver yeah. i guess you're probably the exception to the rule having come yeah. from a more multidisciplinary traditional sports background would that be yeah yeah that's that's right i think um you know most kids do come from gymnastics because once you have that foundation of those acrobatic skills diving's a really great sport to easily transition into um and it's also historically i think a little bit less taxing than some sports like gymnastics and acrobatics where as a kid you can get injured or you can get overworked and um once you have those foundational skills it is a nice transition so yeah i sort of um was the one who did a little bit differently but as i said i had that natural ability and for me i think having that base level of strength and power and you know that just that um sporting ability from the other sports that sort of is what helped me and then I learned more of that acrobatic stuff when I got um, into the better coaching and training more sessions a week. Now you went to the Commonwealth Games in 2010 yeah which I remember watching when we were at school I will stop talking about us going to school together although it's quite <laughs> sidebar Annabelle and I are in the same house and we did win house diving every single year whilst Annabelle was a student at Sacre Coeur so we have that <laughs> we have heard a credit for that I guess going to the Commonwealth Games at such a young age maybe was that one of your first tastes of like big international you know multi-sport competitions yeah it really was it was really exciting I think I've sort of been um, a developing athlete and sort of nudging at that national squad national team level since I was 16 and then had a really uh, big year of growth I think in diving between 16 and 17 when I had a really great coach come over um, and yeah I, I managed to qualify sneak into that Commonwealth Games team and it was really it really was that time that opened my eyes to you know, well, is this Olympic dream possible? And maybe this is something that I can shoot for now that if I'm starting and have made a team at a young age of the Commonwealth Games, then, you know, the, ne- the next progression would hopefully be to make the Olympics. So that was just a wonderful experience and to be able to share it, um, you know, with everyone at school and, and having that support network at home, people watching and cheering and just being a young, naive sort of athlete. It was, it was a really great experience. Um, and one that really set me up, I think, for um, a successful career. And I guess that Olympic dream wasn't too far away after your first yeah. taste. Is that when you decided to move? So you finished school uh, a year after that, and then did you decide to move into state to continue to pursue diving? That must have been quite a big step to take to sort of move outside the comfort of your training base in Melbourne to really put yourself in the best place possible to qualify for the 2012 Olympics? Yeah, that's right. So I finished 
school at the end of 2010 and then I turned 18 at the start of 2011 and our Australian Institute of Sport Program for Diving at the time, it was a centralised program out of Brisbane Mm -hmm. and for a couple of years they'd been asking and sort of putting a bit of pressure on my parents to relocate me up there um, as a bit of a target athlete but my parents were pretty adamant on me finishing school in Melbourne and my family was going to be unable to relocate with me so I'd be going on my own Um, but thankfully I was able to move in with some family friends who live in Brisbane and still able to have sort of that family network around me and support system. Um, So it was really challenging, I guess, moving away from home and starting afresh. There was a lot of changes. I'd obviously just finished school. Um, I started university but was only really doing, you know, one subject at a time. So I sort of was, you know, in a new city, new, new place. Everything was a bit out of my comfort zone, but that was really where I needed to be to try and make the most out of um, that year of training to try and qualify for the Olympics and my synchro partner who I was matched with at the time was based in Brisbane so it made sense for me to be next to her and um, there was a big group of senior athletes, Olympians who I could really look up to and um, yeah try and follow in the footsteps in that program. Well it definitely paid off having you having qualified for the London Olympics but I think having your support um, living away from your home is really is really difficult and I think in those formative years you must you know have a lot to be grateful for for the people in Brisbane who helped to make that feel like home um away from home yeah for sure it definitely had its challenges and I'm a really big home sort of family Mm -hmm. girl so I did get homesick quite a bit um and that's eventually what (laughs) made me come back to Melbourne but I had to do it a, a couple of different times and um each time I sort of got better at dealing with those um, struggles of being away from home and how to sort of find my own seat um, and be super in- independent. It definitely holds you in um, a really good position for life after sport. But Olympics, normally they yep. happen every four years. Obviously, uh, this year has been the exception to the rule. Talk me through what it normally looks like for you in terms of, I guess, the four-year cycle. Yeah, so um, let's just take say after London, between London and Rio. Um, the year after the Olympics, everyone sort of, comes down a little bit and has a little bit of a, a break to give their body time to recover if people have injuries they usually try and get them sorted in that time and then we really put a big effort into that pre-season um, leading into the next year and for diving we have uh, world championships every second year which runs alongside swimming mm-hmm. water polo and artistic swimming um, and every year then in between we have a diving world cup which you know, it's the same high-level world championship competition. It's just um, run separately to the other aquatic sports. Um, and then, yeah, we have the Commonwealth Games in that two years in between. And then really our our big lead-up into the Olympics starts from that middle middle year. So from 2014 or 2018, um, that's when the qualification process starts for diving and we have to compete at a World Cup or a World Championship that, you can start qualifying your country positions, which is a complex process that I probably won't go into. But um, mm-hmm. from the first competition, it's, you know, top three, you guaranteed your country to get spots. And then it goes to the World Cup the next year where the rest of the positions are filled. But, um, yeah, sort of the pressure's on from that two years out from the Olympics. And then with this, you know, postponement from um, the 2020 Olympics to it being this year, that, that just sort of added the extra year of, um, pressure, but also an extra year of stress, as we all 
as we all know, that was a pretty difficult period for every athlete to try and navigate and, um, you know, stay motivated and get enough training in to still put themselves in the best position to be selected. So we really only then have our actual Australian Olympic trials a month or two out from the Olympic Games. So you're sort of on edge all the way leading up to a couple of months out until hopefully you finally make the team and then you just get to go over to the Olympics and give it your best shot. It does sound like a pretty bumpy ride, especially, uh, I guess, yeah. this cycle that's that's just happened. There's so much yeah. meticulous planning that goes in to every stage from, you know, the events that you attend right down to the training that you have to do and having that disrupted, I guess, is hopefully something that won't happen again, but it's probably been a yeah. big learning curve. You were talking about qualification. Um, we'll talk about Rio because – that was just phenomenal. But for this year, um, you and your partner were unable to qualify for the event you won the bronze medal in in 2016. I mean, that must yeah. just have been a really disappointing thing to experience. Like, what what really happens there? Yeah, that was a really challenging period of time. So pretty much for three-meter synchro, which is the event that Maddie and I had won that bronze in, we'd been on podiums most competitions ever since Rio and we're really looking forward to trying to improve um, you know and change the colour of our medal going into Tokyo um, unfortunately at the 2019 World Championships we didn't come top three um, so we didn't automatically qualify Australia that spot which then meant at the 2020 World Cup we'd have to um, come within the next top four because they take eight teams to synchro to the Olympics one of which is already given to the host nation, and then there's seven extra teams to go. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was then where the, the goal was moved to, all right, well, we should comfortably qualify from World Cup in 2020. And then obviously the pandemic hit, and in March last year, I think, our World Cup was supposed to be in April, and when everything sort of kicked off in March, we were told that the competition was going to be postponed. And then obviously everything really kicked off and everything started getting cancelled and um, moved to next year. So the World Cup was moved to um, April of 2021 and we still thought that, you know, well, given the current circumstances in the world at the time that, and especially in Japan because the World Cup was going to be in Tokyo and run as a bit of a test event for the Olympics, mm-hmm. we thought honestly that it would still be cancelled because lots of countries were going to be struggling to get visas, to get travel insurance to be able to go and we didn't really have a lot of communication from um, our international governing body on how they were going to make it COVID safe. So anyways, a, a kind of week by week, um, all of a sudden World Cup was cancelled and that was going to be great for us because they would go back to 2019 and go down the ranks and we would have qualified um, by that sort of rule. Um, so that was good and we got all excited about that and then a week later they put the World Cup back on um, and rescheduled it to um, a couple of weeks later and just logistically for Australia as well, it was going to be really difficult for us to leave the country and then get back in the country, have to quarantine and then still have our Olympic trials only a few weeks after that. So at one point, Driving Australia was going to put us on a private jet, which was going to cost you know three hundred thousand dollars that they probably don't have. Mm. Um, and yeah, it was just getting really messy. So in the end, the Driving Australia board made the decision that it was going to be unsafe um, for us to go, and that they couldn't guarantee our safety because no coaches or medical staff were going to be travelling with us. So 
we had to forfeit our um, synchro mm. spot, long story short, and weren't able to compete in that event at the Olympics. God, that just sounds like a really difficult position for you to be put in as an athlete and also I guess for your governing body wanting you know they would want you there and they would want you participating in Tokyo in the event that you came third in in Rio but I guess it's just an accumulation of um, difficult hurdles to try and get over which I guess eventuated in that and it's I know you as such an optimistic and positive person so I know that would have been really difficult but I guess that bronze medal you won at Rio gosh Belle that was amazing I remember watching with my mum who also who knows you Trisha's very happy for you just so you know I always kept getting little messages when you were competing in Tokyo saying oh Belle's on the tv she's jumping now oh she's diving now sorry not jumping um I guess being on the podium and diving is something which is incredible and it's really challenging. You know, it, there's lots of nations around the world which are super competitive and, you know, channel lots of funds into their yeah. you know, elite diving program. You and Maddie, I met Maddie at the um, Com Games a couple of years later. Just, I guess, yeah. maybe briefly talk to us about, you know, the last dive that sort of got you over the line and into onto that podium. Yeah, well, thinking back to that competition was just crazy. I think um, you know, when we compete, we don't actually look at the scoreboard. So oh. going into the last round, yeah, we wow. we sort of put that put that um, as a distraction. So we can't really control what everyone else is doing. But we honestly didn't think we were in the running for a medal because we felt like our first, you know, the first four dives out of our five dives weren't probably our best. But, you know, so diving Rio was an outdoor pool. So it turns out no one was really diving their best. And, mm. After our last dive, a uh, bit of a funny story, but when I when I did my hurdle, which is sort of like that approach you do to the end of the springboard, my toes were hanging off the edge of the board, which then meant my body was catapulted a little bit further forward than I would usually go, mm-hmm. which when you're diving in synchro, initially underwater, I'm like, oh, I've messed this up. I'm going to be further out than Maddie. Our scores are going to be lower. So I come up from the water and I just go up to Maddie straight away. I hugged her and I said, I'm so sorry. I went so far out. And she said, oh my gosh, I did the exact same thing. I hardly even did an arm swing. And it turns out we, <laughs> made, we both made the same mistake, which then turned out to make asynchronized scores really great. And yeah, our names came up in third and we sort of were in disbelief because mm. as I said, we weren't expecting to be um, that close to the medals and our coaches just were so happy. And then all of a sudden you're whisked away um, to go to the medal presentation because everything's run pretty quick. Um, to time for TV so yeah it was a whirlwind but finally just soaking that all in and standing on the podium it was it was extremely special and something that not many people can do and um, to have that opportunity just to be there and then to do well uh, it was really amazing. Yeah it's definitely one of the highlights of your career I guess talk to me about diving in general you said you're a kid that loved to do flips flips and stuff um, on the, the trampoline, I definitely was only probably a crack the egg kind of person and didn't even like really being <laughs> the egg that much, to be honest. <laughs> but two brothers. I don't think anyone likes being the egg. No, they really did it, didn't they? <laughs> um, I know you do the three metre quite consistently, but you've also competed in the 10 metre platform before. 
When I watch the diving, and I'm sure lots of people sitting at home see how high up that diving board is, you know, what what goes through your head? I guess you probably have, you have no fear because you've done it so many times, <laughs> but initially is it really difficult, I guess, to work up the courage to not just jump off it, but do a handstand and hold that 10 metres yeah. above the water? Yeah, well, I guess every, every kid who starts diving is different. And for me, when I was younger, I did have no fear, no fear. so... Um, doing 10 meter and standing backwards and flipping three times in a tuck position and coming out of the water. For me, like, that wasn't a big deal back then. Um, but, but honestly, for me to think or to picture myself doing that, that now, just, it would never happen. I would be yep. petrified. So as I've gotten older, definitely gotten wiser, <laughs> I realized that it's much more fun to just go from three meter. Um, but no, when, you know, when you are training platform, it's all a process. Um, you know, there's a three meter platform, a five meter platform, a seven meter platform, and a 10 meter platform. So every dive that you eventually do on 10 meters, you build up to and you work your way up to. Um, and then you're really only doing those big dives up to 10 meter if it's, you know, in the realms of your capabilities and your coach thinks that you're ready to do it. Um, it is scary and it takes a lot of courage and you, you have, you know, those, um, nervous jitters and you get all the adrenaline when you're learning and you dive. Um, but once you do it over and over again, as you said, and just like with anything, it sort of just becomes second nature and you get used to it. It's not until then you have six years off 10 meter diving and you decide to go back that everything's just very scary. <laughs> you have to really work up the courage to um, catapult yourself off the 10 meter platform. Yeah, I don't know if I'm going to be brave enough uh, to try that at any stage of my life, Bill. So <laughs> I, I think that that's pretty amazing. I guess when you're... <laughs> doing all of your training and you're working your way up to all of those new dives, I can imagine there might be a couple of things that go wrong along the way. I've seen you working pretty hard in the gym. Have you had any major, I guess, disruptions to your preparation for these major events over the years? Yeah, that was a great segue, though. Um, I did have <laughs> I did have an accident in the gym, actually, in 2013 leading into our World Championships, and I was doing calf raises on a box which I'd done plenty of times before um, but unfortunately this time the box actually flipped and the bar came crashing down and crushed my finger um, which was pretty traumatic just because yeah. you know there was a lot going on and I couldn't really look at it but um, my hands got sort of wrapped up and uh, I remember going upstairs to the doctor at the VIS they'd just arrived for the morning and you know she had a look at it and she said to me well, you know, or I asked her, am I going to be able to go to this competition, one of the lead-up comps before World Champs? And she's like, oh, you know, I'm not going to write you off. Like, you know, you might be fine, but I'm just going to ask if, you you know, your mum can take you to the emergency room and they just have a better look at it. Right. I think she just didn't want to crush my dreams. But as soon as I got to the emergency room, the lady um, said, oh, yeah, you've done a great job at this. We'll get you into surgery tonight. And, oh, my, my heart just mm. dropped, but. Yeah, I was in a splint and had a metal, two metal rods hanging out of my finger for a couple of months, so couldn't Ooh. sweat, couldn't get them wet. Um, and, you know, just for a finger injury, it was a, pa a pain in the backside, that's for sure. But, um, yeah, that, that sort of, I think it was more hard for my parents to have an, energe an energetic um, athlete stuck at home. So, 
yeah, that was definitely not my most favorite time. Mm, you were you're a netball through and through um, with an injured finger. That's a that is a rite of passage <laughs> when it comes to playing <laughs> netball. So you'd you'd fit right in uh, to the Vixens at the VIS training ground. Emily Maddox has had her fair share of finger surgery yeah. over the years. Yeah. So maybe not between fun. the two of you, you'd have you know you'd have five good fingers. I think you'd have one good hand between yeah. the two of you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, exactly. Very, very useful. So you're talking about, I guess, trying new dives. Um, I guess when I think about trying something new, um, even in general, you know, it's a difficult, I think, to start again. And I guess, you know, all of your newer dives would have some sort of uh, beginnings in dives you could already know. But maybe um, you can give some insight into the process about how you put together a new dive. And also when you've been diving at the highest level for so long, how you try and continue to seek improvement and have motivation to train and perform? Yeah, that's a great question. So, um, for example, one of the hardest dives that I've ever tried is a forward two and a half somersaults with two twists, Mm -hmm. which not many girls in the world can do. Most girls just do one twist. But um, to learn that dive, I had to really go back to basics and, and sort of break it down into different parts. So, Using the one meter springboard, I would do, um, you know, a front double somersault, which is just landing on your feet to get the somersault part right. And mm-hmm. then you add one twist and you get that right. And then you add two twists. And then once you're sort of comfortable with that whole movement, um, you then take it up to the three meter and try and put it all together. Um, but, you know, even when you are doing things for the first time, you start from bouncing on the end of the board so you get like a little bit more momentum compared to if you do the regular approach which we call a hurdle. Um, if you add a few extra bounces you're going to get a little bit higher which makes the dive easier to be able to make. So yeah it takes a lot of um, practice, a lot of trial and error. It definitely does not always go right. I've landed on my side, my back, <laughs> my leg um, plenty of different times but yeah you sort of are uh, obviously want to try and avoid anything going super wrong so you really have to focus on those little technical details that your coach um, is giving you and yeah then eventually it just takes time um, you know first time I did a double out which is sort of the name for that dive um, it was horrible and <laughs> it wasn't great but and I sort of thought how am I ever going to be good at this or is this really worth trying to put all this effort into but then, you know, a year or two later, looking at the progression of that dive and um, it's becoming slightly easier, but, you know, still challenging every time. Um, it's sort of a rewarding process, I guess, especially when you are, as you said, at sort of that end of your career where you've done the same sort of dives for a very long time and how do you stay motivated? Well, um, you know, it's always chasing that extra bit of improvement. I don't really taste perfection because perfection in diving is really difficult and yeah. almost not really uh, possible. Um, but, you know, when when you do feel yourself getting a bit stagnant or you feel like you're not really moving in any direction, that's usually when your coach will mix something up and um, try and change up your program a little bit to find that extra bit of improvement. Um, and that's sort of what's been the case for me over the last couple of years, which has been an interesting process, but um, it's been really fun to just keep trying to push myself and see how much better I can get. Well, I'm sure there's um, a few le- years left um, in your jo- diving journey, Belle, but I guess if you can flash back to a week ago when you were in Japan competing at the Tokyo Olympics, um, we were just chatting off mic about how I think 
these Olympics in particular, whether it was a combination of so much of Australia being in lockdown or, you know, an amazing time difference or just the build-up, you know, is it going to go ahead? Should it go ahead? Um, you know, what are the repercussions of an Olympic event happening in the middle of a pandemic? Um, I can just say from my perspective and I think a few others – Thank you uh, for, you know, <laughs> traveling there and having to quarantine on the way back to compete to just provide some amazing moments, some inspirational dives and just the, it's just, I think all of us will look back and just feel um, proud of all of our athletes and just amazed about what you were able to achieve, but maybe just run us through, I guess, a couple of highlights or a couple of differences from your previous Olympic experience, because you're a three-time Olympian now, Belle, and that is pretty damn cool. <laughs> oh, thanks, Jay. No, yeah, this, this Olympic Games, I definitely felt that as well, and so many people back home have told me how amazing it was to have the Olympics on and, and how excited and proud and um, you know, sort of gave them something to look forward to every day during the hard times in lockdown. But I had those exact feelings just being over there. And, you know, I, I have been on lots of Australian teams now and seeing this five-year sort of gap, I think it, I, I had sort of forgotten what that felt like to be at the Olympics and, and how amazing it is and, um, you know, being part of a greater Australian team and just hearing so many different people's stories of how they got to the Olympics in the first place and all the challenges and adversities they had to um, sort of, you know, climb through. And, um, yeah, just seeing everyone's faces light up in that moment of realising at the opening, you know, the night of the opening ceremony that it's here, we made it, we're, you know, we're part of the Australian team, we're Olympians and let's just see what we can do over the next couple of weeks. And to see so many athletes, um you know, do amazing things, not just win medals, but be great sports and provide, um, you know, smiles and happiness just for people back home. It really was a special team to be a part of given the circumstances and, and how we got here. But, um, yeah, I, I guess over my three Olympic cycles now, when people ask me, like, oh, which was your favourite or which was the best Olympic? To me, they've all been the best in different ways. So... For, for me, London in 2012 was the best because um, the village was amazing and we were able to have so much freedom to leave the village and we could bring our family into the village and, and really didn't think twice about, um, you know, our safety or anything like that. And then uh, fast forward to, to Rio and winning a bronze medal was just a fantastic experience and, and, you know, that's obviously the highlight for that Olympics. And then moving to Tokyo, as much as we had so many restrictions and we weren't allowed to leave the village and we had had daily COVID tests and had to wear a mask everywhere, take all that aside, um, you know, the Japanese people and the volunteers and just um, the energy from everyone in acknowledgement that we were just there at the Olympics and they were able to run um, a safe game, um, you know, that was just amazing and to be part of that Australian team once in a lifetime sort of, um, COVID Olympics uh, was really special. Yeah, that's um, that's really sweet, Belle. So I guess you're having some time now to decompress um, in quarantine. You're at Howard Springs with quite a few of the Olympic team members. I know it's quite sunny there. Um, I guess what yeah. are you looking forward to most um, when your you're two weeks are up and you can become resume normal programming? Yeah, well, initially um, – because I had been training in Adelaide for quite a bit of the last year and a half and um, I was planning on coming straight back to Melbourne, which is home, to be able to finally see all my friends and family who I haven't seen in so long. But 
given Melbourne is in lockdown and my car and a lot of my belongings are in Adelaide, ready to be moved back home. But um, I think, yeah, now I'm probably going to change my flight to go fly straight into Adelaide just to mm-hmm. make sure that I don't get locked out for months on end. Um, so, yeah, it'd be nice to sort of close that chapter of training in Adelaide and whether I keep driving or not, it'll um, definitely be in Melbourne. So, yeah, I've been living with... Um, you know, one of my good friends who she drove at the 2012 Olympics with me and mm-hmm. that's been a really nice process to sort of bring that back around and spend some time with her and, yeah, just enjoy a bit of time with the South Australian crew before I then pack up my bags and commit to hopefully not a too long of a lockdown in Melbourne before I can then, you know, hang out with my family and friends and really just celebrate this time that we haven't really had a chance to celebrate yet. Yeah, fing- I'm crossing my fingers on uh, that one too. I guess yeah. <laughs> um, my last question I have is just about what you're hoping to pursue, um, you know, post-diving. Not sh- not sure when that will be. I know you're on the AIS Athlete Advisory Committee, which I think is an amazing initiative and probably a great opportunity for you to be able yeah. to have a voice as an Olympic athlete too. I know it's mm-hmm. um, a different um, position that you're in and potentially to what I would be in playing in like a domestic yeah. league competition here in Australia but um, I guess what are you looking forward to away from the pool? Yeah well I'm not to be honest I'm not entirely sure um, what my dream job or dream future looks like in terms of one specific role but I definitely am really passionate about sport and about high performance sport and would love to work um, within a professional sporting team or um, I also really want to stay involved with the Olympic movement and, mm-hmm. um, you know, work with the AFC or the, even just the Victorian Olympic Council moving forward. Um, and, and, you know, having that position on that AIS advisory committee as an athlete, it is really important um, to me to, to try and help the future generations and the future kids who come through the pathways to make it to elite sport that they have, um, you know, a really great positive journey and some of the things that, we've learnt from our careers as athletes that we can input into AIS and help them to develop greater programs in the future. That's something I'm also really passionate about. And, um, yeah, I honestly think most of my life will be surrounded by sport, which has always been the case and that's always what I've wanted. Um, but I guess in my, like, fairy tale land, I'd love to be, like, a travel journalist that just travels around the world Ooh. reviewing hotels, adventure tours. Like, I love getting outdoors and, and doing fun things. So um, in my fairy tale world, I think I'd just love to be a full-time traveler. <laughs> Maybe you'll get um, a combo of both because sport normally, apart from the current situation, does afford you a lot of opportunity to travel. And I know you're a massive Tiger supporter, so maybe – there will be a career out there for you, I guess. Maybe. (laughs) Maybe. Thank you so much for joining us on Finding Your Fearless. I think your insights into what is such a phenomenal sport like diving are incredible and also I guess your journey about, you know, picking up the sport at quite a young age and having achieved so much. I need your thoughts on netball's potential inclusion in the Brisbane 2032 Games. If you're hoping to stay involved in the Olympic movement, I know you've got an investment at netball. <laughs> yeah. We need everyone on our side. I, so. <laughs> I know. I did see yesterday a few people um, posting about that, which honestly made me so excited. And, you know, just even thinking that Brisbane, Australia is going to host the Games again oh, and, agree. you know, having such a large following, a large participation of netball in Australia, I couldn't think of a better sport. But, 
um, similar to I've got your back and whatever I can do, um, I will be doing. And I know so many people would love to see netball on that biggest stage. So fingers crossed. Fingers crossed indeed. Well, uh, thanks for joining me, Belle, and I'll probably see you around the VIS at some time in the near future, but hopefully the rest of your quarantine goes all right and enjoy your time off and the celebrations. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you so much for tuning in to Episode 8 of Finding Your Fearless, a Melbourne Vixens podcast hosted by Joe Weston. Finding Your Fearless is presented by Deakin University. Just like the Vixens, Deakin University is fearless in its approach to learning, which is why every single course is backed by industry experts. Deakin University, progressive real-world learning.